In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world, and, and though the wor world was made through him, the, wo the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jade. Beautifully read. Hello, 4pm. For yet to meet, my name is Nick. Always love coming to 4. You guys are great. Our question today, haven't we outgrown religion? There was a philosopher in 1882 named Friedrich Nietzsche. Hey, kids in the room, can you say Nietzsche? Nietzsche. Bless you. Engaged. All-age learning, everyone. This is fantastic. Nietzsche, apart from a great name and a very inspiring moustache, which I'm working on, said this very strongly, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. Nice light afternoon for your Sunday. <laughs> He's writing in 1882 in the ascending light of the Enlightenment, this moment in human history where perceivingly we are leaving behind superstition and the way of religion and things that aren't verifiable or rooted in fact, and moving forward in a rational world where we can believe things that we know to be true, things that we can test and verify, the scientific method. And he's saying in very stark terms that those who once believed in God were those who needed to because of their weakness. Religion was a crutch for us to get around, to make sense of suffering, to deal with the fact that life is really hard. He's not real, but we needed him to get by. But now, the future is ours. Utopia is to come. The future is ours to define. We can leave that weak God of Christianity, particularly really every other religion in the past, and we can chart our own way forward. Now, it's 2023. 
This church is mostly full. Nietzsche probably jumped the gun a little bit. But, I mean, maybe God's not dead, but he's breathing his last. Maybe he's on the, the hospital bed and he's soon to go out the back door. I mean, if you've, if you've sort of spoken with ordinary people and rubbed shoulders with those who just belong to our society here in Sydney, you would have gotten the impression or heard explicitly the suggestion that religion is outdated. Christianity is bigoted. Its values really should remain in the past and have no place for the future. You need to give up any thinking in your brain to have any sense of faith in a divine person. Christianity especially is anti-intellectual, and you really do have to leave your brain at the door when you leave the house if you're going to live a life that goes with God. I remember sitting in a cafe where I often go early to read my Bible, and a couple of tables down, someone was just loudly being like, oh, those idiot Christians, I can't believe that they're still thumping around. And I kind of wanted to walk a couple of tables down and be like, yeah, I'm reading my Bible right here, if you could be, keep it down a little bit, right? It's, it's just a part of our society. Now, that guy's a little belligerent to yell it out in front of everybody, but it is a common conception that we have outgrown religion, that those who hold on to it are really just like antiques, a relic of the past, or those who have been indoctrinated. I, I was confronted with this most significantly right after I'd become a Christian. I became a Christian in year eight at high school, high school students in the room, yeah, yeah. Became a Christian in year eight. In year nine, I'd somehow found myself, I was a very cool student, by the way, I had a bowl cut, it was awesome. Um, and I, I was a part of a school group called the God Squad because it turned out most of the Christians in our youth group gathered together. They're actually less Christians than Christians, but we got the God Squad name. Anyways, we had, I remember vividly, we had this spot next to the basketball court where we'd hang out at lunchtime, because you always hang out in the same spot. And this one particular lunchtime, there was this group of atheist guys who, like, that was their thing. We were the God Squad, they were the atheist guys, and they dedicated their lunchtime to harassing us. They came up to the fence, they didn't want to step into our filthy space of Christianity, and they stood through the fence, and they were just hurling abuse at us. You guys are absolute idiots. How could you believe any of this? You're just fools. Some of the girls are crying in the corner, and I remember it vividly because they brought with them a bucket of chalk. They'd never brought their homework, but they managed to remember to bring chalk that day, and they sat on the basketball court, and they drew a picture of this guy, the spaghetti monster, flying spaghetti monster. Have you ever seen this before? This is sort of an atheist trope that's brought around as if, like, this is a church worth following just as much as Christianity. He's made up, he's a spaghetti monster, he has a book, he has a church, and this is really what we believe. It's just, it's brought out to make fun of Christians. And so I remember vividly sitting in my spot, they're drawing this spaghetti monster, and they're saying, look, this is more real than your God, because at least I can see it right now. I mean belligerent, annoying atheists. It's not everybody. It's not, it's not everyone in our society. I totally grant that. But the thing that stuck out most to me was the, how the rest of our year group then reacted afterwards. It was actually really encouraging. For the most part, they got around us, and they were like, hey, that's not on. We shouldn't treat people like that. And we were like, yeah, God Squad. But as we started to have conversations after that, we realized they condemned the behavior that they witnessed, but they actually kind of agreed with their point, that most teenagers in my year group, in year nine, in the early noughties, thought we were nuts for believing in Christianity. They thought it was actually a fringe belief that required you 
to kind of like hide yourself away from mainline society because you're kind of like the Amish who don't believe in phones or something. Like we're nuts. For ble- that is a part of the society we live in. Haven't we outgrown religion? Absolutely. And yet, I just want to be really clear, it's just not true. I mean, you probably expected me to say that. I'm a preacher in a church. I spent from year nine to this point thinking and researching, and because I'm in year nine and I'm a new Christian, thinking, what have I signed up for? Does this really have any legs to stand on? Well, the answer is, well, yeah, it does. You take any of the main fields that you would think have disproved Christianity, and you'll find that there are rigorous, thoughtful reasons to stand firm in your faith. You come to science, often the the line that's thrown around is like, oh gosh, Darwin killed Christianity when he came up with evolution. There is no disconnect between modern scientific inquiry and the reality of Christianity. If you were to engage in any field of science, you would find many experts who not only believe in Christianity, but, but have been enriched in their Christianity because of their science. There's a man named Francis Collin, a great example. He's a scientist and a doctor. He was the former director of the Human Genome Project, and he describes his conversion from atheism. He says this, I began a journey to try to understand why intellectually sophisticated people could actually believe in God. To my dismay, I found out that atheism turned out to be the least rational of all the choices. To quote Chesterton, atheism is the most daring of all dogmas, for it is the assertion of a universal negative. Okay, science, we're happy with. Philosophy, Nietzsche, right? 1882, God is dead. Well, I mean, he kind of nailed the, put the nail in the coffin, right? Well, and at the time, it seems true. Most philosophers were naturalistic materialists who didn't believe in anything divine. And yet, here we sit in the 21st century, and the tables have turned. <laughs> in 2001, atheist philosopher Quinton Smith was engaging with a bunch of Christian philosophy from the 20th century. And he has this point of rebuking other atheist philosophers because they're letting Christians and other theists walk circles around their atheism and their arguments. And he's saying we need to be more rigorous because they have a really articulate way of making a case for God. God's not dead. God's revived. He's back alive. We've almost, like, we've got a God of resurrection. I don't know what's going on here. That's philosophy. But what about history, right? Wasn't, isn't this Bible thing, wasn't this just made up by a bunch of white dudes in the fourth century to take control of the world? Wasn't, hey, wasn't Jesus that guy they made up so that they could, like, paint a picture of what they wanted the world to look like and convince the Romans to... It's just absolute bollocks. Professor John Dixon said this a few years ago, a challenge. He said, contrary to recent atheist claims, Jesus did live. I will eat a page of my Bible if someone can find me just one full professor of ancient history, classics, or New Testament in an accredited university who thinks otherwise. I think it's been about eight or nine years. He's yet to eat a page of his Bible. Why? Because Jesus was a real person who walked and breathed and lived in the first century. The Bible is a verifiable historical document that speaks to his existence, and there are good reasons to believe he is who he says he is. Right. There's, there's just a little speedy kind of overview of some of the reasons why Christianity is not something to be thrown away. So why is there such an incredible disconnect between popular thought how can our modern society 
just think that we're absolutely nuts for walking into a church on a Sunday? How can there be such a disparity of, of, of what popular academic people recognize and just ordinary people on the street? They really believe that the welcomers at the door give you a name tag and then give you a bucket for you to put your brain in. Like, it's just, it's absurd. How did we get to this point? Well, there is a deeper reality going on. It's not just about ideas and that which is most true and not true. We are living in the middle of a battleground. We are experiencing a moment in history in which we have competing visions of what it means to be a human and what it means to live a good life that are completely and utterly incompatible. They run counter to one another. They cannot coexist. If you've heard the term secularism, it's a, it's a word that describes the landscape of modern Western society, and it suggests that we're all standing on neutral territory. We can all believe what we want to believe. As we walk down Woolies and we're each buying our milk, we can high-five the atheist and the Jew and the Christian, and it's all going to be beautiful, sweet utopia. And yet that's just not the reality that we live in, as we've already explored tonight, today about the perceptions of Christianity. The reality is that the, the modern view that pervades our society is one that allows no room for a Christian worldview or really any religious worldview once you actually get to crunch time. Let me explain what I mean. The secular vision of the good life, what, what is it that means to be a human and live a life that's worth living, a life of flourishing. Well, today you would find that the way that you find a life worth living is found in the word freedom. If you can throw off all of those things that are going to oppress you and compress you and force you to live a life that isn't right for you, and if you can look within and you can find who you're truly meant to be, and if you can forge a life for yourself that lines up with the person that you are deep inside, you will live the life that's worth living. There's a nerd term for it. It's called expressive individualism. The idea you would have obviously probably heard before of individualism. We're a society that cares so much about the individual. We're so much less about the family, the community, the village. That's a thing of the past. But what it means more deeply is that you as an individual need to forge for yourself a life worth living. And the expressive part is to say that you need to look inside to find that life. And that life will prove itself to be worth living when it's affirmed and seen by those around you. Why does this run counter to Christianity and to religion? Because if you have a worldview that actually says part of my identity and my life isn't right, you're oppressing me. And you're actually, you're actually cutting me off from the life that I deserve to live. And so it's all neutral utopia, high-fiving and woolies until we hit a point of tolerance. Do you really believe what I believe? And can we coexist together? It really is a clash of kingdoms, a clash of vision of what it means to live to, for, for the nerds in the room, and sorry, I don't mean to blanket you, but there's a book by Carl Truman. He wrote The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's really brilliant academic um, analysis of philosophy and history the last three or four centuries, kind of getting to the heart of it, like how did we get how we got here? Here's a summary of it. Um, it says this, intellectual, aesthetic, and cultural developments in Western culture have radically transfigured by way of secular disenchantment how modern men and women 
conceive of human identity and liberty and flourishing. In other words, our modern world has thrown out everything that humans have believed for a long, long time about what it means to be human and have completely transformed it into something new. And that runs against a religious view, and that runs against a Christian view. And so we realize, why is it that Christians are sidelined and considered to be so fringe and weird? Well, it just doesn't compute with the modern world that we live in. And we don't get upset about that. We're, we're a people of love. We want to embody Jesus, and we expect that it's not going to be an easy ride, but we do need to have our eyes wide open. And if you're not a believer here, you might not have articulated any of this as what you think or feel about the world, but just like a fish swims through the water, you're breathing in those toxins without even realizing it. And it does pollute and change the way that we think of ourselves. Now, I don't mean to be harsh, and every individual's experience is different, but if I was to, to stop and do the eye test, I would say secularism is not working. People are wealthier, especially in our corner of the world. They have more available to them. The technology that has made life easier is unlike any generation ever before. The opportunity to do and be anything that you want to be is unlike any other time ever before. And yet people are not happier Life is not better. Mental health diagnoses are through the roof. It's a fairly verifiable, documentable reality that this is the loneliest point in all of human history. Somewhere along the line, we've stuffed things up. And so to say that this is the future of utopian life, as Nietzsche would have us think, is just absolutely false. What if there's something better? What if maybe there's a different way of looking at it? You'd expect that from me. I'm in a church. But let me tell you, the Christian worldview, I think, has something to offer us. I think there is something beautiful here. Freedom isn't something that we generate for ourselves and use to throw off everything that would constrain us to forge our own life. Freedom is ours to take hold of Him who made us and find the life that's truly life. This church is called St. Augustine's Neutral Bay, if you didn't realize. And the guy, Augustine, he's incredible. From the fourth century, he wrote some wonderful things. One of my favorite sentences in really ever is this. Augustine wrote, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What if that restlessness, that that longing for something that we are seeking to achieve and forge for ourselves isn't found in doing it ourselves, but in coming back to the one who made us. Author John Mark Homer put it beautifully. He wrote this, deep in the subterranean recesses of every human heart is an ache, an ache for God, for love, for beauty, for a peace to stand against the sea of chaos, Pascal called it the God-shaped hole, the inner void we all seek to fill. Here is something that I think every person in the room and in the world should be able to affirm. There is something in the human soul that longs for more. We are not satisfied with just being and doing everything that's right in front of us. There is an ache, there is a longing for beauty, for joy, for happiness, for peace, arguably for God. I was reading an article called Will Religion Ever Disappear from the BBC, and it was written from an atheistic point of view. 
And through this whole argument, this lady, she got to the point in the argument where she said, well, no, religion will never disappear because there's a God-shaped hole in every human. Like, hold on a minute. That, that's a very Christian thing to say. What's going on? And I kept reading, and she said, well, yeah, it's, it's a quirk of our evolution that at some point it was advantageous for us to believe in a higher being, and so therefore we've fostered this sense of the divine, and that's hardwired into the human experience. So we'll never really get rid of religion, but if we could just stop trying to find a God, then we'll be a lot happier. I thought, okay, you had me for a while there, but then you lost me, only because that's a big stretch in my mind. What if instead of looking back to evolutionary theory, we're actually recognizing something fundamental to the human reality, that we were made by God and for God? Colossians, the book of the Bible written by the Apostle Paul in Beauty, writes this, in Jesus Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Speaking about our freedom, Tim Keller says this. It's really helpful. It'll come up on the screen. A fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air. So it's free only if it's restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put out on the grass, its freedom to move and even live is destroyed. Real freedom is finding the right restrictions, the ones you were designed for. What if our hearts will remain restless until we find our rest in God? What if we're just fish seeking to get out of the ocean and we're going to be confronted with a stark reality when suddenly we can't breathe? What if, like thirsty people, we just long to have anything to quench us, so we we throw ourselves in the ocean and we lap up salt water until we realize that we're being killed by the very thing that we were craving? What if God is true and He has something to offer us? Let me finish by sharing just a quick picture of some of the freedom that Jesus offers, some of the life that you can only find in Him. There is a freedom and a joy and a flourishing that comes when you return to the one who made you. Psalm 1611, speaking about God, says this, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I certainly have experienced this, that I've looked for, for a life full of joy in all sorts of places, and it turns out that God was holding it in the palm of His hand the entire time. And there's beauty when we return to God. There's a freedom of forgiveness. Anyone who has that moment at one in the morning where they just are confronted with a mistake or an awful thing that they've done and they can't get to sleep because it's just ruminating through their mind... The answer is not to try and throw it off as something that's oppressing you. (laughs) The answer is to bring it to God where he says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, give me that burden, I'll take it for you. There's so much freedom knowing that Christ has taken it all. There's the freedom of love. In John 1, which Jake read for us before beautifully, it says this, yet all who received Jesus Christ to those who believed in his name He gave the right to become children of God. Something you could quickly overlook, but when your life falls apart, when you look around and everything you are holding onto has kind of just burnt up in the flames, 
and you really have nothing to hold on to that you thought you needed to be the person that you were meant to be, there is nothing more incredible than realizing that God is still there and that He loves you because He is your Father. Romans 8 puts it beautifully, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's the freedom of hope. Every person in this world is seeking to make the best of their 80, 90, 100 years when you get that cool letter from the royalty. Everyone's doing their best, but what if there was more? What if even after you've stuffed it up, this was just a blip, the waiting room before the real thing began? What if we were made for eternity, not just for a a moment in this world? 2 Corinthians 4 says this, Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. Everything that we're experiencing in this world, in our 80, 90, 100 years, light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The invitation that hangs over all of this is Jesus, who looks every single person in this room, in the eye, and says to you, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me. Come to me. I made you, and I want to love you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Anyone feeling weighed down, doing your absolute best to try and forge a life for you, just come to me with your burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest for our restless souls. What if it's all found in Jesus all along? Can I just a quick word to the Christians? Stop looking in the wrong places. Life's hard. You get weighed down with stuff. It's really difficult to make it through another week, especially in a hard season. Jesus is the one with the rest that you long for. He doesn't take away the problems, but he will carry you in a way that you cannot believe. For those in the room who maybe aren't convinced yet, you're still asking questions or you're skeptical, can I say, come and check it out? If, if I'm right, your entire existence will change. If I'm wrong, you might have wasted a couple of moments considering it. I'd love to invite you to our Alpha course. On October 10th, from Tuesday evenings, you can come have a free meal, watch a quick little video that speaks about Christianity so you can think a little further, bring your questions, kick the tires, give it a go. This could change everything for you, or it could not, and that's okay too. Love to, anyone's welcome, head to our website, you can get some more details, but whoever you are, I want to just leave you with those words of Jesus once more. He invites you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. God Almighty, if you are who you say you are, you are so capable of meeting us where we are, showing yourself to us, 
revealing that your rest is enough for us. Lord, we pray for every one of us in this room that you would meet us where we are. You'd show us that anywhere else to look for that longing to be satisfied is, is not going not to cut it. Only you can bring rest to our restless souls. So, Jesus, please, would you come to each of us, even some of us who aren't feeling like we're ready to come to you, would you just show us that you have what we're longing for, that we might come to you and find rest for our souls. Amen.